Thank you all for joining us today. I'm Nick Young, Assistant Professor of Neurosurgery at Emory University School of Medicine. This podcast will explore treatments for spinal stenosis, including minimally invasive procedures, open spine surgery, and, and endoscopic spine surgery as well. All too often, we're siloed in our own practice. Today, we will hear about our counterparts' approach to evaluating and treating spinal stenosis. In doing so, I hope we can enhance collaborative opportunities amongst our disciplines and just deliver excellent patient care efficiently. I'm grateful to be here with Dr. Wang and Dr. Kim. Um, doc doctors, would you mind introducing yourself? Hi, I'm Nick. Thank you and the, to the CNS and NANS for uh, inviting me. This is a wonderful opportunity to share our thoughts. Uh, my name is Mike Wang. I'm a neurosurgeon, a professor of neurosurgery at the University of Miami. I run the spine program here. I am 100% dedicated to spinal surgery. Thanks, Mike. Uh, hi, my name is Brian Kim. Uh, I'm the director of pain management for a large multi-specialty medical group out in Sacramento, California. Uh, I work closely with about four to five neurosurgeons. Uh, originally from the DC, Virginia area, but uh, moved out to the West Coast for marriage. I'm excited to be here with Nick and Mike. Brian, th thanks for joining us. So I, I'm actually very uh, excited to have this discussion. Uh, I think this is really at the kind of the forefront of treat treatment. Uh, there's a lot of emerging technologies in, in this particular domain. I want to start off with Mike. Um, Mike, for those of us who are uh, less familiar, uh, can you tell us about, you know, what, what, what's the definition of endoscopic spine surgery these days, and what is the state of that kind of approach in the United States? Yeah, that's a great question, because how do you define it, right? So obviously, the use of the endoscope is evolved, and some folks are using exoscopes, some people are using uh, various types of retractors that would be considered minimally invasive, but when people talk about endoscopic spine surgery, what they usually refer to is something called working channel endoscopy, which is a very, very small port where you actually work through the endoscope or something akin to that. And that's really been sort of the past history of, of where we've come from. That is, of course, evolving as technology um, gets more and more advanced. But when you think about that, most people, what they mean is working channel endoscopy. And how, how has that changed your practice as one of the leaders uh, in, in uh, in, in this uh, technique? Well, you know, it's interesting because uh, Nick, if, if you think about this on a global scale versus a US scale, right? It's quite different. So if you look at the United States spine market, very, very little of it's done uh, with endoscopy. In other words, very few surgical procedures in America are done with the endoscope uh, in the spine, except for in select centers, very few academic centers use it. But if you go to other countries like Korea or Germany, China, it is extremely common. And it was really on my trips internationally that I started to realize we as Americans are probably not fully appreciating the full utility of working channel endoscopy in our practices. Great. Um, yeah, I think it's a, it's a really exciting development, certainly in, in, in treatments of, uh, I guess, more fragile patients. Uh, I, I, I remember hearing you talk about patients where um, the, there was a recurrence of symptoms and they were um, more than amenable to giving it a second try sometimes because of just uh, how, how effective it is with uh, uh, and not having to go through general anesthesia, right? Yeah, and this is where I really like the fact that you have Brian on as well, who's a 
pain management specialists, right? So I, I was always mystified by the fact that pain doctors can do procedures on patients and they often work, right? But if they don't last, you know, patients don't seem resistant to doing another round of whatever it is on offer. Whereas with spine surgery, it's like if even the smallest spine surgery fails, it's like a disaster to the patient, right? And I, I didn't realize what a huge divide there was between our fields. And, and I would say that endoscopy starts to bridge that a bit in the sense that you're absolutely right. When I do an endoscopic surgery uh, on a patient, if, if they don't get better or the result doesn't last, they don't get as upset as with traditional, say, open surgeries. Brian, I, I want to I take the discussion to you. Um, tell us more about your experience in terms of uh, what, what, what's currently uh, being offered right now, what's, what's emerging in, in your sector, and how does that kind of blend with these um, less invasive approaches uh, that uh, Mike's been talking about? Right. Um, so when it comes to minimally invasive uh, spine procedures uh, for the inter interventional uh, pain physician, typically uh, the most common things would be the mild procedure and the interspinous spacers. Um, you know, over the past few years, uh, I think both the training uh, and the literature, uh, the robustness of the literature has expanded a bit. Um, uh, typically the mild procedure uh, and the interspinous spacers, uh, these are procedures done under uh, MAC or deep sedation, uh, not under general anesthesia, no paralytic, uh, through very small incisions or percutaneously, uh, typically fluoroscopically guided, uh, no direct visual visualization of where we're working, but uh, through the fluoroscopy. Um, typically, uh, the experience has been similar uh, to what Mike is talking about uh, in terms of patient's tolerance for the procedures, uh, willingness to kind of work at it uh, through staged um, injections and treatments. Um, and so they've been pretty receptive of these procedures, but definitely there are certain weaknesses, um, certain limitations. And so picking the uh, appropriate patient, uh, the appropriate diagnosis with the appropriate images is, is crucial. Terrific. Can you, can you tell us a little bit more about the types of patients who would be uh, more suitable for the mild procedure? Uh, what's, what's your uh, kind of home run type of patient? Right, right. So bo for both of these procedures, uh, the, the diagnosis, uh, the issue we're treating is lumbar neurogenic claudication with stenosis. Um, we are not working in the cervical or thoracic space. Um, both of these procedures are working within the posterior column of the spine. Uh, the, for the mild procedure, uh, that is typically focused on uh, very specific ligamentum flavum hypertrophy, uh, primarily leading to central canal stenosis. It's not very good at addressing uh, neuroforaminal lateral recess uh, or disc bulge, disc herniation oriented uh, uh, stenosis. Um, the inner spinous spacer uh, is more of an anatomical uh, correction or wedge or a backstop. Um, and that typically helps address uh, multiple forms of stenosis, not just ligamentum flavum uh, related hypertrophy. Um, but yes, uh, if, if, if any patient has significant positional uh, related symptoms or positional related relief, uh, but they're typically have significant comorbidities, advanced age, 
or can't tolerate general anesthesia or just don't want a larger spine surgery, then that would be a candidate that we're looking for. Got it. Um, do you, do you, um, I imagine that an MRI uh, of the lumbar spine is uh, a, a prerequisite for, for deciding which patients are suitable for these. Is that right? Absolutely. Um, so both for the mild procedure and the interspinous spacers, um, an x-ray, flexion extension, uh, lumbar MRI uh, would be critical. Uh, the, for the mild procedure, uh, since primarily the intervention is oriented at thinning out that, uh, the hypertrophy of the ligamentum flavum, uh, we would obviously want to see a, uh, a, a respectable uh, or appreciable amount of uh, hypertrophy there. Uh, and for the interspinous spacers, uh, we're also looking for appropriate uh, anatomy on x-ray and MRI to ensure that the spinous processes uh, and the lamina uh, look appropriate uh, for fitting this spacer. Uh, not all candidates are, uh, and, and not all spines are, are um, amenable uh, for the spacers. You kind of have to have the perfect anatomy for it. So you would have to account for, do you have to account for osteoporosis also? Absolutely. Uh, so particularly for the interspinous spacers, uh, you know, although, although it's very rare, uh, spinous process fractures, lamina fractures uh, are, are possible. Um, I haven't seen it yet, uh, but uh, it's quite a possibility. Uh, so definitely looking and considering osteoporosis uh, is critical when, when performing these procedures. Got it. Are these uh, are these only single level spacers that you're you're doing, or um, are, are people doing more than one levels? Uh, typically, for multi level stenosis uh, or severe issues, uh, um, and, and generally speaking, for all uh, the patients that I consider for these procedures, I typically have them seen by a neurosurgeon, spine surgeon first. Um, to give them all the options, essentially, and, and let the patient kind of choose. Uh, but these would typically, the, the patient population we're looking for would be uh, one, maybe two level stenosis. Uh, typically, when it's beyond that, um, you know, you could stage these procedures, but I, I don't think it's worthwhile, uh, typically one or two levels. Yeah. Mike, uh, just, just curious to see what your experience is with spacer patients. Uh, and one of the things that I've been kind of contemplating is there's, you know, particularly in the neurosurgery spine field, there's the idea of, you know, that there's a, a real focus on global alignment. Uh, I, I, this may not fit in the context of that, that, that you know, the, the things we think about in terms of global alignment, maybe it is. So just curious to see what your thoughts are on that. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting because in the surgical realm, I think a lot of them have gotten a bad rap. Um, if you think about the experience with X-Stop um, and now with CoFlex, I actually like the CoFlex for some stability, but I think what Brian's talking about with VertiFlex is even less invasive than what we do as surgeons. And I, I'm not uh, against it. I think that I see a lot of folks who are very old and they're re reluctant to undergo a surgical procedure. So if that will help them and they can avoid having a surgery, that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. If it doesn't work, it can always be removed or can always be managed with the foraminotomy or open surgery. You know, there's so many options now for patients. And I think what, what you're seeing here as you put together, Nick, is this continuum of care. It's, it's that, you know, there's a whole spectrum of options available to patients to try to get relief. And the patient has to kind of decide, like, where do I live on that spectrum? Some people would rather just have the problem 
definitively cared for, but then that incurs different risks, right? Incurs risks of infection, anesthesia, and all that. So as we struggle to, to, to deal with an ever aging population with all these problems, I think it's nice to see these new procedures and, and yet newer ones coming on the horizon to, to give us tools so that we can offer something to patients who want to get, you know, they want to get better. They want to be more functional. They want to have less pain. Yeah, that's a great point. The, the, these are all great points. Uh, I think certainly with these technologies, we are, we are creating a spectrum of treatments. And uh, I think that's going to be very powerful as our patients get older and more complex. Um, and I, I want to kind of hear from both of you um, what, what it looks like now in terms of the, the escalation of treatments given the technologies that we have. I know that's kind of a difficult Know, challenging picture, but imagine a patient who's very reluctant, has spinal stenosis. Uh, we have multiple options now. Where, where should we start? You know, let's say this patient is on a sicker end, a little bit more fragile. Uh, I, I imagine it ends up in both your office at some point. Yeah, right. So, so typically, um, I'd like for the patients to be thoroughly evaluated in clinic, then you know, have a thorough uh, physical exam, review of their images. I kind of present the options uh, ranging from the most conservative uh, to what I consider would be the most invasive and everything in between. Um, if I think they are even remotely a surgical candidate or if the patient is interested in surgery, then I would uh, get the spine surgeons, neurosurgeons involved. Um, and, and, you know, I always tell the patients, it's not necessarily that I want you to jump to a larger spine surgery, but I would just like you to discuss what these potential options might look like. And so uh, oftentimes patients can be reluctant, reluctant up front. Um, you know, there, there's a full spectrum of, of patients that we encounter, but I think seeing the full menu, so to speak, um, is very helpful and uh, engaging with the patient to let them choose uh, where they'd like to start and how they'd like to engage this, um, I think is pretty, pretty important. Um, but I think a lot of it does have to do with the severity of the condition and also uh, the temperament and the, the kind of feelings of the patient. Yeah, I would echo that. And I would add another piece, which is very complicated in the spine, which is the geography, right? So in other words, a person can have very bad stenosis at one level and moderate stenosis at another. And one can easily envision that not every surgery has to be a complete fix of what we see on the MRI, right? So you could treat the worst areas maybe with an open surgery, and then maybe someone like Brian can manage the other parts and drag this out, kick the can down the road. We, you know, we don't know how long the patient will be around for, but maybe you can minimize risk rather than just always going to the biggest surgical procedure to begin with. That's the philosophy I take to my clinic, and I think the patients really appreciate that in general. That is, that's great. Uh, Brian, do you have to, in terms of anticoagulation and things like that, uh, what's, your, what's your practice with, uh, you know, uh, getting patients ready for, you know, uh, spacers or mild procedures? Right. Uh, typically with, with, you know, we, we follow the ASRA um, kind of medical specialty guidelines there, but when it comes to um, the mild procedure, since we are, uh, uh, messing with the ligaments and flavum, the epidural space. Uh, we do follow the guidelines uh, very strictly. With the interspinous spacer, um, uh, under fluoroscopic guidance, we're pretty much staying away from the uh, central canal. So uh, epidural hematomas, uh, bleeding, that's less of a worry. 
the minimally invasive nature uh, of the procedure. Um, you know, I've done many, many of these cases and, and bleeding has never been a, uh, an issue. Got it. Uh, for, for the rest of, of our time, I just want to turn to how clinicians can adopt these new exciting techniques into their practice. Um, what does that look like? Uh, and we can start with you, Brian. What, what does that look like for someone who's learning about this, interested in being able to offer uh, these kind of treatments to uh, the patients where they, where they work? Right. I think, um, you know, over the past few years, there's been a, the training and the education has been, uh, you know, exponentially growing, um, you know, both in the endoscopic field and, as well as interventional pain. But I, I think, you know, it starts with GME uh, programs. Um, if they're interested in being interventional, uh, doing these types of procedures, then going to the most surgically oriented, interventionally oriented um, internship, residency fellowship programs is important. Um, exposure after GME, you know, typically through medical societies, there's uh, didactics and uh, hands-on cadaver labs uh, that happen across the nation. Um, ha having good mentors, uh, working and collaborating closely and cross-training with uh, spine surgeons, neurosurgeons, uh, bouncing things off multidisciplinary teams, I think is also uh, very critical. Mike, how, how about, uh, you know, the, the, the new frontier of endoscopic spine surgery, um, but what is the uh, opportunities for practicing surgeons to kind of adopt that techniques? Or do you think it's something that requires, you know, fellowship uh, intense training? Yeah, I don't think it requires fellowship. I certainly didn't do a fellowship in endoscopy. And it's, it's exciting because there's so many techniques, right? So you can start with, say, doing lumbar transframinal endoscopy. That's sort of classic starting point. Then move to inner laminar. So those are the classic two arms of lumbar. And then if you look further, uh, lots of folks like Christoph Hofstad are doing cervical surgery, uh, thoracic surgery. You know, we've taken a different direction at University of Miami, which is moved to fusion. From the get-go, we are really using this as a stepping stone to try to do really big surgeries through a less invasive approach. And I think you're going to see some exciting developments we've been working on in terms of trying to fix spinal deformity and um, sagittal balance. That's coming. Uh, I know it seems anathema, it seems crazy, but th there's a lot that you can do with the endoscope in certain spines. And again, you know, the patient population, you know, if you think about the morbidity of a major uh, spinal deformity surgery, even a small one, it's significant. And so if you can do that either stepwise over several surgeries or without general anesthesia, or if you can just reduce the blood loss alone, right? Those elements uh, are really powerful. Most people have gone to bigger surgeries anterior, like anterolateral, uh, anterior to psoas, ECR, uh, lateral approaches like X-lift, D-lift, O-lift. And those are great surgeries. They're definitely minimally invasive, but they actually carry some real risks as well, right, to the other structures of the body. So what we're trying to do in Miami is to get a posterior approach through endoscopy to allow us to do some, some major corrections, maybe not as big as some of the, the, the huge deformity surgeries, maybe not in a revision situation, but maybe in the cases where someone is, is just on that cusp where you're like, well, I probably wouldn't do surgery on them because they're too old, but maybe I can get them what they need uh, through a percutaneous type of approach. And, and then more on that later is, is sort of a teaser, but that's what we've been pushing for at University of Miami. Oh, that's great. 
sounds like you're using you're leveraging this uh, this technology for like very targeted treatments uh, to to address the, the the worst part of it. That, that's been my approach. I mean, a lot of folks who do endoscopy, what they're looking for is something they do in a surgery center where they can treat young, healthy people, maybe earlier treatment of disease when the disease is less severe. And that has not been the route I've taken through my career. I, I know that that's what most people think about with MIS surgery. Mm -hmm. I've always taken the tack that this is for the sickest, oldest, uh, most, most uh, afflicted people, not the worst pathology necessary, but the worst substrate, right? The worst the worst uh, protoplasm, as we used to say in medical school, right? That's that's kind of where I'm trying to take this or have been trying to. That's very exciting. Um, Brian, uh, I, you know, we've heard, we just heard from Mike about, you know, the, the developments in terms of uh, endoscopic spine. Um, what what developments in, in, in your uh, discipline are you excited uh, that most excite you? Uh, right. So two, two of the most exciting things uh, that I'm keeping an eye on um, and, and closely following the results for have been the uh, peripheral nerve stimulators. So traditionally, we've been doing, you know, lots of spinal cord stimulation uh, for, for post-laminectomy syndrome or for folks with uh, severely injured backs that don't want spine surgery, um, but they're looking more for symptom management. Uh, but peripheral, uh, with the uh, advances in stimulation technology, you know, just like cell phones, everything getting smaller. Um, now we're able to um, directly treat the peripheral nervous system uh, for peripheral nerve injuries. Uh, so, so that's something that I'm keeping a close eye on. Uh, the second thing is, is the uh, posterior kind of bone graft, sacroiliac joint fusions or arthrodesis, which is essentially just a, a small bone wedge that we can place using the posterior approach directly inside the sacroiliac joint. Um, initial studies have been pretty promising. Uh, the results uh, from my clinic have, have been very impressive. So just keep, I'm just keeping a close eye on that and pretty excited about those things. For, um, for the last few minutes, I just want to uh, talk about how both of our disciplines can work better together, uh, seeing that we're coming a little bit closer in, in, in terms of being able to offer some, some of these interventions to some of the sickest patients that we see. Um, it's certainly gonna be a collaborative approach um, and an exciting one too, I would think. I'll, I'll take it first. I think, you know, it's exciting that we just have this conversation. I work a lot with pain management doctors. We rely heavily on them before surgery to try the conservative route after surgery to manage people who have persistent symptoms, right? And so I think that whereas the philosophy and culture uh, in general, I'm using a broad brush here, right? And stereotyping is quite different between spinal neurosurgeons and even orthopedic surgeons, but particularly spinal neurosurgeons and what you'd consider anesthesia or pain management or PM&R. I think that there is a coming together of, look, we're trying to treat patients, we're trying to make them better. And you always ask, well, what would, what would you do if it's your mother, right? And I think that it's almost impossible to function effectively as a spinal surgeon without some close relationships with good, and I want to use the term pain management. I know that it's a broad brush, but let's just call it um, non-invasive spinal interventionalists, you know, something like that, or less invasive, right? It's not really surgery, right? Stuff done through a needle or things like that. You can't really function without those people. You can't give good care without those people. So I, I think that whereas, you know, we tend to see, oh, see those 
folks as maybe like, you know, putting in stimulators or, or being band-aids. Those pieces are very critical in the overall care of patients. Just like what we do is important, you know, when we're fixing structural pathology. I think as, as we move into the future, that closeness of relationship, I think all spine surgeons who are serious about this business understand that ecosystem. And to, to sort of violate that ecosystem always jeopardizes the care for the patient. And, and that's my opinion on it. Yeah, I fully agree with that. Uh, Brian, uh, just love to hear your thoughts on how we can kind of collaborate uh, better together between amongst our disciplines. Right. You know, I 100% agree. I, I think the biggest thing is, you know, just keeping an open door, uh, open channel of communication. Um, you know, we, we like to celebrate our successes, but kind of cover up when things don't go, uh, you know, optimally. Uh, but uh, I think definitely having a multidisciplinary team, um, talking with your neurosurgeons, your spine surgeons, um, letting them know what you have to offer and understanding what they have to offer. Um, and essentially just helping each other out. I, th I think that's the biggest part. You know, I, I stay in close touch with the four or five neurosurgeons that I work with. And so we always know we're available to each other um, and open with each other uh, regarding patient care. So uh, I think that's, that's made a really good collaboration, at least in my group. Well, thank you for that. Um, gentlemen, it's been, it's been a great conversation. Um, I really enjoyed our, 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 uh, the topics that we've covered. Uh, I just want to thank, thank all of our listeners and also to, to the CNS and NANS for supporting this joint collaboration for this innovative series. Uh, Dr. Swang and Kim, thank you both very much for uh, taking the time to discuss this very important topic uh, in our fields. I hope you will be, be able to join us again for our future episodes. Uh, particularly our interactive webinar moderated by faculty from these podcasts. Uh, this is a jointly funded and conceptualized project from the education committees of NANS and CNS. Thank you, Nick. Yep, thanks for having me.